This is the Why Fathers Cry podcast with Kwame Alexander. I'm Kwame. And today, we're getting a special edition. I was on tour promoting my memoir, Why Fathers Cry at Night. It was an emotional roller coaster, eight cities in three weeks, and each night felt like a therapy session. It was a new thing for me to be talking about myself in public, live, forthcoming, honest, upfront, about everything. No more sickness. No more but dying. I made it through. When I lay my and I feel like I've come out on the other side understanding myself a whole lot more. I feel like I'm freer. Part of that reason is because I got to talk to some really cool people on this tour in front of live audiences who asked me anything and everything. And one of the most amazing conversations was with W. Kamau Bell in Berkeley, California. And we learned a lot about each other, about our daughters, about our fathers, how to give more grace to my dad. And as you'll see, how to give more grace to myself. I hope you enjoy it. Thanks, W. Kamau Bell, for talking and listening. Thank you, everybody, for coming tonight. We appreciate you coming out. Thank you for coming. We couldn't do this without you. Yeah, thank you for, I mean, I know you got kids and yes. you got stuff you're doing. And I just appreciate you, you know, taking the time out and appreciate Bryant for introducing us. Yes, yeah, the, the, the black man bat signal went up. <laughs> wow, you guys are tight. All right. Uh, <laughs> And they're about to get tighter with this book. (laughs) So, well, let's talk about that. The impetus behind writing this book specifically. Tell me, but you've written, as we've heard, you've written a number of books that sounds like a made-up number, as I said backstage. Well, she said 38, but it's actually incorrect. It was 39. Somebody get to Wikipedia and update it, please. (laughs) It started as a book of love poems. My career started back in the early 90s writing love poems, and no one would publish them. So I started my own company and published them myself. Now, yeah, (laughs) woohoo. Mind you, they were really, you know, I'm not going to say they were bad love poems, but lips like yours ought to be worshipped. See, I ain't never been too religious, but you can baptize me anytime. Like I was writing, and I was so I was, I was publishing love poems. So this it's book, very, it's very early LL Cool J. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so I so so when I set out to write this book, it was to to get back to my roots after having written a couple dozen children's books. I want to write some love poems because I know people think you're a children's book author. You don't really have a life. Children's book authors are out here in these streets, y'all. <laughs> Trust me on that. And so I want, we have a life. Like, we love, we lose, we grieve. You swear. Yeah, we swear. Um, And so I wanted to write some love poems. And as I began to write them, Kamau, I started seeing that I was telling a story. Like, the poems were linked. And so I said, well, let me write some prose pieces to give context to the love poems. And And then my editor said, why don't you write another prose piece? And another prose piece, and before you knew it, 
there were recipes and letters and prose and poems, and there was one through line about my life as it relates to how I've loved, how I've failed at love, how I, what I've learned about love, and how I want to love. And then it became a memoir. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't help but as a, we're uh, both black dudes of a certain height, uh, close in age. So I felt, the, as I was reading it, I think I felt, I feel a connection that maybe most people aren't going to feel to this, but I felt like a connection here, so I can ask you this question. Why am I so bad at love? So, he said I could do anything up here. Part of the joy of, like, the first 30 books, or the first 38 books, were very, they were made up. Like, I was making up stories. This is a story I couldn't make up. This was my story. And so, um, when I got the advanced reading copies of the book, and I read it, like, I never had panic attacks. I woke up in the middle of the night with, like, this panic attack, like, and I called my editor. You cannot publish this book. <laughs> There's no way we can publish this book because I am revealing way too much about myself, and I don't want to do that. And she sort of, she told me that, well, the books are in the warehouse, <laughs> so that's not going to happen. Yeah. And she sort of talked me off of my ledge. One of the things I learned is that perhaps I have not been that good at love, and here's why. I don't like having hard conversations. I don't. I have never liked it. I, I never argued. In 23 years of marriage, we had one argument. And, and my sisters are like, man, y'all got the perfect marriage. Y'all are good. Y'all are golden. And I'm thinking, yeah. In 23 years of marriage, we had one argument. And we had one argument come out because I saw my father argue with my mom in this way that was just mean-spirited. I mean, he loved her. He loved us. But he argued with her in this way and with us that made me say, I'm never going to argue. I went the op- other way. These things have not served me. And, and so I find myself, um, I find myself twice um, uncoupled. And so there's a, there's a, a, a litany of, of reasons why I have not figured out how to love And I think writing this book was the first step for me beginning to acknowledge so that I can learn how to do it a little better. Mm -hmm. Did that answer your question? It does, yeah. I know why I don't love well now. Thank you. (laughs) No, I I think this is the, I think, as you know, black men talking openly about our emotions and talking about internal conflict a lot of what we talk about or what we're encouraged to talk about is external conflict is not something that happens in front of people. We're encouraged not to have these conversations. So I appreciate that. Like, I, as I read the book, like, and I actually did, I listened to the book, which I, people have done with my book too, and it's sort of like it makes it even more intimate, you know. 
But like, and you can feel even in, and especially in the audiobook, even in the things that are pleasurable, there's this, un, it's, like a, it's like the undernote in food of pain, you know? Yeah, but this performance thing, what I think about is that I have spent my career being a performer. Like, I, I've been to Berkeley a lot, y'all. Shout out to Mrs. Dalloway's. Right? Like, I know how to get on stage and, and, and do my thing and perform and present and, and, and make y'all, you know, um, connect. I know how to connect with you. I'm going to the studio to read the audio book, and I'm like, yeah, I'm about to do this. And I get in there, and the same thing that happens each night of this book tour that I'm on stage it's not a. It's no performance. Like I, I can't, I can't, I can't come with my performance. I, I don't know what questions y'all gonna ask. Hopefully, y'all ain't gonna ask no crazy questions. I was, I was being interviewed by Terry Gross on Fresh Air, and she said she asked me a question, and I was like, thinking to myself. Why are you like all up in my business like that? <laughs> what are you doing? I ain't say it like that, but I was like, and she was like, well, you wrote a memoir. <laughs> and so, I mean, I don't even remember what, the, what your question was, but yeah. But just the, 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 the feeling that I don't know if this is, I don't know. I'm saying as a black man that pleasure and pain are not that far apart from each other. That there's always a, an undernote of like, and I felt this in the book and I related to this, of like, even in the yay, there's like the, you know, there's like the roller coaster. Yeah, I mean, the pain and the pleasure are a part of it. And, and writing this book, I knew was going to be a lot of pain as I got into it. And I also am, I like to traffic in joy. Like my life is all about upliftment. And so as I was writing this, I began to think, okay, I'm going to write this in a way that my two daughters, my 14-year-old and my 31-year-old, are going to be able to understand their father in a, in a, in a, in a more holistic way. And so we're going to deal with the pain, but we're going to, we're gonna, I'm going to redefine the narrative on some things. For instance, divorce. I don't want my 14 and my 31-year-old, and particularly my 14-year-old, I don't want her to think that the divorce is the thing that defines our family. When she looks back on it, I want her to sort of understand the pleasure, how we made you. In the future, when you're newly married and the two of you are half hanging off your bed, fingers playing in each other's locks, your legs braided, loud garbage trucks beeping outdoors, no whining children yet to cook for, and you're talking about leaving your job or whose family to visit for Christmas or how lucky you are to be loved like this or whatever it is you talk about after making love in the early morning, I want you to know that before our uncoupling, 
your mother and I used to work the door at a jazz club in Washington, D.C. And every Thursday night, we'd stand at the entrance, collecting covers, greeting friends and regulars, feeding each other jerk wings, kissing the hot sauce from our lips, joking and laughing about this and that, holding each other when it got chilly. And later, when we get back to our one-room apartment on the other side of the 14th Street Bridge, we spread the money out on the bed, count our hall, smile if we could pay the rent, worry if we couldn't, and then we'd make our own music. And without fail, without fail, the woman next door would bang on the walls <laughs> and tell us to turn it down. But we wouldn't because we couldn't because we knew how lucky we were to be loved like that. Is it challenging to write about former relationships and to access the good times of those former relationships and to know that like, well, that's the first part. Is that, is that, a, is that, is that challenging to do, to write about, especially people, you know, you had kids with these, it's not like, it's not a, right. you know. It is absolutely terrifying to write about them. It was easier when this was a book of love poems because I could hide behind the metaphor when it became a memoir and I gave it context, it was hella hard because these people are still walking the earth and they're still in my life. And so, so that was the hard part to do. The easy part to do was to focus on the joy, was to sort of shift the narrative and remember the beautiful, precious things that defined us, not the thing that, you know, not the uncoupling. So those, that was the easy thing to do. Are you aware that those people might read this and are, is that affecting, you know, I think about like, write as, sometimes I say write as if the people you're offending or the guilty parties are never going to read it. But at some level, when you're writing this, are you thinking about that moment? First of all, I ain't say offending. But I would not let anybody read this before I published it. Mm. Yeah, I didn't do that. Um, and, and three things happened after the advanced reading copies came out. Well, I sent the book to everybody. Who, who I'm, who, Why am I nervous? <laughs> <laughs> Why do I feel all the type of way? So, so my youngest daughter, she's 14. She saw the book on the counter. She's like, oh, dad, the new book is out. I'm like, yeah, it's a memoir. She's like, cool, we're studying memoir in class. She's a freshman. How cool would it be if I took your memoir and used it for my study? She's like, and then she says, I'm not going to do that, but how cool would it be? <laughs> my second daughter, who's 31, Nandi, We haven't spoken in a while. We had, a, we had an argument and it exploded into something unimaginable. And, and so she, um, Sarah Grace, 
who works for me, she got an email from my daughter and it said, I heard my father has a memoir coming out. I would like to know if there's anything in it that my mother or I would be embarrassed about or would feel a certain kind of way. Can I read the manuscript? And so I sent her the book with a note. Um, and of course, I would never do that. It's all love. I would never. I painted a self-portrait in this book. There are other people in the painting. It would have been unfair if I had tried to paint their portraits. I didn't do that. So there's, I would never do that to my kids. So, so that happened. Steph, who um, were separated, Steph, I, I didn't send her the book. And the book came out, and she was like, are you going to give me a copy? Are you going to let me read it? Uh, and, of course, intellectually, yeah, I was always going to let her read it. But, like, practically, I never thought she would have to read it. <laughs> so I was like, yes. And I gave her the book. And then, like, I waited. And this was, like, three months ago. And she still hasn't said anything about it. And I remember I was talking to my therapist, and, and I said, can, can you believe she hasn't said anything? And she's like, Kwame, you, have the right, you had the right to write the book, and she has the right to respond or not respond to it in however way she needs to. And the last thing is, is my dad. Um, he read it and he, he called me and he said, I read your little memoir. Do we have the same dad? <laughs> now I know why we're so in common. Had I known Kamal that I was writing a memoir, I don't, I don't know if I would have done it. Mm -hmm. And I am so glad that I did. I mean, we were just talking backstage about the Cosby series I did. And if I had known going in that was going to be as personal as it was, I never would have done it. It's the same, yeah. Yeah, and that Cosby documentary was so powerful, bro. I mean, I, didn't, I refused to watch it, like I told you, for so long. <laughs> and, and so many friends had, were saying, you have to see it. And um, it, was, it, was, it was a beautiful, honest, painful necessary piece um, but I get it I get it you're, you're, as an artist your job is to reflect observe um, analyze explore um, bring the woes and wonders of our world to to the, to, to us mm -hmm. and you get in it and you're, you're in it you're doing it and you don't necessarily think about all the ramifications of it until you get the advanced reading copies <laughs> or you see the dailies or whatever. See, I think that, that may be the difference between me and you. I'm a big catastrophizer. I, I think I learned it from that movie Ghost Dog uh, with, uh, with uh, uh, Forrest Whitaker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To imagine your worst defeat. <laughs> like, so I think I'm always like imagining the worst possible scenario because I think that maybe sort of almost makes it impossible to happen. Well, you know, Bill Cosby's not going to come to my house. Uh, I, but I imagine that he would. I imagine, like, what if I wake up and he's just like, hello? And, you know. <laughs> we will be right back.
I love fly eyewear. I mean love to the tune of 32 pairs and counting. But I'm about to add the pH de resistance to the fold. My own limited edition frames. That's right. The Haiku Collection, created in collaboration with the incredible team at Kirk and Kirk. With over 100 years of history in the optical industry, the Kirk family continues to innovate and push the boundaries between fashion and eyewear. And this new line is at the forefront of fly eyewear. Flywear. Oh, yeah. Handcrafted in Italy, each style comes beautifully packaged with an original haiku penned by, that's right, me. The Haiku Collection, coming in early December 2023. Head to kirkandkirk.com slash Kwame, K-W-A-M-E, and sign up to receive news and updates on the Haiku Collection eyewear, including VIP pre-order access. One of my favorite things about being a father has been sharing my love for books with my daughters. And it started before they were even knee-high to a duck. Discovering stories to read to them and with them, teaching them how to read, listening to them do so on their own, it's pure magic, y'all. When I wrote my first children's book, Acoustic Rooster's Barnyard Band, I knew I wanted a publisher who shared my vision in bringing meaningful stories to young readers. And that is exactly why I've been partners with Sleeping Bear Press for nearly 15 years. Sleeping Bear is deeply committed to their mission of providing books that engage, entertain, and educate from beginning readers to young adults, covering just about every subject you can imagine. Head to sleepingbearpress.com or follow them on Instagram at Sleeping Bear Press to learn more about their incredible award-winning selection of unforgettable stories that provide children with the opportunity to explore the world. I want to go back to what you said earlier about the idea of like, this is a self portrait and, and how like, you're not going to tell and I'm paraphrasing. These are your versions of events I would imagine, but you, so you're not necessarily talk. So other people shouldn't be, a, I, let's use the words. I said the word offended, but, it, but I find that like, even if you tell a story that you think is just about you, if other people are in it, they often can have their feelings about like, wait a minute, that's not, you know, even if it doesn't reflect them in a poor light or the way you, but how we define poor light is very different, you know, or how we define like, wait, I was a bigger character in that story and you've X me out of it or I didn't say, it. you know what I mean? Like there's just ways in which people, when, especially people who are, I think about this with documentary all the time or with like people are suddenly in the bright light for a second and you put this much of them in there, they can have feelings about not having this much of them in there. Yeah. So my dad, my dad, I don't know if he got treated very well through his eyes in the first part of the book. Like I could, knowing this man, I could see him reading it and thinking I am not being treated well, which is why he said he's suing me for defamation of character. Sort Wait, of in jest. <laughs> Oh, I didn't say, yeah, he said he's suing me for defamation of character. In jest, he sort of said. Then he was like, so how's your day going? But he was in his feelings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And because I really went in on trying to understand how I've, how I've loved. And I, so I talked about how he loved 
And it was hard. It was harsh. It was different. Um, and so I know that as he read it, that he was feeling a certain kind of way. But I also know that there's no way I would have written 39 books. There no, there's no way I would be sitting on stage with W. Kamau Bell talking about my books were it not for the way my father loved. And here's how he loved. He loved with words. It was all about books in his house. Books were reward with my mom and punishment with my dad. It was always books. He was writing something. He was reading something. Every Thanksgiving, we went to New York City. We drove up on Thursday morning because my father had a book fair in Harlem every Friday that my sisters and I had to work at. We had to stand behind the table. We could not sit down. We could not eat behind the table. We had to read the jackets. My sister, who was way smarter than me, she, she went to Stanford. She read the books that we sold. I read the jackets. This was like all of our childhood. We worked at, for his publishing company. Like we were doing this work for my dad. And, and we how lo- much were you getting paid? Exactly. <laughs> we loathed it. We loathed it. So this particular Thanksgiving, we're driving up the New Jersey Turnpike. We're in a Ford Thunderbird, a red Ford Thunderbird. My sisters and I are in the back seat. Mom and dad are in the front. Everybody's asleep. My dad falls asleep. He's driving. Car flips over. It lands on its top. We're upside down. I can see cars and trucks behind us. My father checks in with each of us and he said, he, to, to see how we're doing. And when he gets to me, I respond, damn. To which my father, book publisher, college professor, academic, Baptist minister, says, watch your words. <laughs> and then he proceeds to tell me to get out of the car, crawl out of the car, and go pick up all the books that have been strewed out of the trunk onto the turnpike. So I'm picking up books like five minutes after this major accident on the turnpike. My father, the books were everything for him. And so, so I also recognized, you know, I had to tell my truth. I told him that. I was like, I spoke my truth in this book. And he sort of laughed. He was like, because I, I, in the book it says Mercury Thunderbird. He was like, some of that stuff you got wrong. Ford made Thunderbird. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's interesting. Yeah. I was thinking about telling a story about my dad, but I decided not to. No, okay. you got to. You got you to tell us now. Kamal. What is this? Uh, <laughs> All right, so I'm going to tell it like they're not here. Okay. All right. Although my mom hears this, and she's going to ask me about it later. Wait a minute. Your mom's here? She's, yeah. Give it up for Kamal's mom, (laughs) y'all. So two days ago, my daughter uh, has a birthday. My oldest daughter turned 12. Uh, My youngest daughter is about to turn five, so we do like a combined birthday party. My wife, who is white, famously... uh, (laughs) Most of her family lives out here. I'm an only child. She's got a brother, twin sisters. They each have a couple kids. We've got three kids. So, it, so, and they're they're one of those families that like, you could have a hundred room house, but if the mom is in one room, everybody's in that room. 
Whereas me and my mom, we, we could have like a three-room house. I'll see you later. I'll be in this room. I'll be in that room. And we're still close. We just don't need to be in each other's space all the time. But my wife's family is not that. They all need to. So, which I've come to understand. So now, like, everybody gets up and moves to a room. And I go, all right. <laughs> it's fine. It's great. So <laughs> my, this is just on some black dad. Like, what are you doing, man? So, my, so I, my, we're singing happy birthday to my oldest daughter and my youngest daughter. My oldest daughter's name is Samaya. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Spelled our, differently, but yeah. Oh, this, our kids have the same name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We thought we picked unique names. Uh, so uh, we sing happy birthday. I take a video of it. We do, at the end of it, we sing the, Steve, we sing the Stevie Wonder happy birthday because I know how to be black. Um, and, I know how, and, so, and I got these mixed-race kids, and I want to make sure they get their vitamin B shot of blackness regularly. So... We say, and I take a video and I send it to my dad and I also pan around the room so you can see everybody who's there. It's my wife's family. He goes, where are my granddaughter's black relatives? I go, there's two of them here, me and my mom. He sends me a text back listing all of my black relatives who live in the Northern California area and all their job descriptions <laughs> to show how highfalutin they are and st- goes off on this tangent about like, and I was like, Negro, do you, my mind, like, Negro, do you want me to never text you again? Is that what you're trying to do? And I, what I really wanted to say was like, this is Melissa's brothers and sisters who all had two kids. So it's a full house of their, this is not extended relatives. He's sending me like, your third cousin who blah, 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 invented the stop sign, whatever. <laughs> I'm like, I wanted to go, this is my wife's brothers and her sisters, their parents and their, all their kids. This is not extended family. I don't know if you recall, but you and my mom were only together long enough to have one kid, and you would have never spoken again had that kid not still lived like me. You know what I mean? So I don't have a bunch of brothers and sisters to be here because of a choice that you made. I didn't text that back. (laughs) Because I'm saving it. (laughs) Apparently for this. But there's just a thing about, like, I don't know if that's black fathers or, or fathers in general, that is just like, like in that effort to, I find often, to reach out and connect, something comes back where you're like, what is broken in you? Mm. Mm. That well, I see is my, I'm sorry, I'll give it back to you. I will be your Vin again shortly. But I feel as a dad, as a, specifically as a black father, actively making choices to make sure that that's not what I'm doing. So here's the rub. <laughs> this is the rub, my friend. In 10, 15, 20 years, our daughters are going to look back on us, and my kid is probably going to say, and he was in Berkeley, and I had a softball game, and can you believe this man? He did not come out. He was busy traveling around the world trying to change the world one word at a time. What about me? Like, she's going to have her own story, her own narrative, just like I got mine about my dad. And so here's what I've learned, Kamal, and this is what I think we got to do. We got to learn to extend some grace to our fathers. Oh, man. I know. I know. Because they are, they are, I mean, look at me. I complained about this man who forced me to read the dictionary, the encyclopedia, who traveled speaking and stuff, who was so bookish, and I've written 39 books. And I'm sitting here, I'm sitting here away from my kid. Talking about, 
I got to extend him some grace because my hope and my prayer is that this kid extends me some grace. I think we got to do that, man. They are doing what they learned how to do from their fathers and from their grandfathers. And that, if we go That's far, my mom, by the way, who's, doing, who's giving you the footnotes. We are... <laughs> <laughs> like, we, we are not grown men, Kamal. We are growing men. I'm not having fun anymore. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> I think this is the hard part about extending grace. Like in the moment of what I thought was extending grace, I'm not, you don't get it back. And you're like, that was grace, dude. <laughs> and, you, and you just have to, what I'm hearing is like, there's no, that's just, there's that, yeah. But, my, dad, my dad, I don't know how old George's father is. Mine's 81. And my dad's so, about to turn 80. Okay. So this is, this book has been very challenging. It's been very difficult to be out here and, and to be on this journey of being vulnerable in a, in a way that I know is going to serve me because I want to be a better person, right? And so it's, it's really, it's an emotional, a real heavy emotional place to be. I welcome it. It's tough, but I'm in it. My father calls me two days before I go out on tour. And he says... He says, I heard your latest interview about the book. He says it was one of the worst you've ever done. Oh, my God. And then he says, and the book is not your best book. Okay? And so so all of a sudden, I'm feeling like that 10-year-old boy who I'm feeling like that 10-year-old boy. And and so I go back into old Kwame, who didn't say anything. Because he doesn't want to argue. He doesn't want to have that hard conversation. And And then I say, okay, well, a couple days later, I'm about to leave. And, okay, let me call my therapist, because I really need to have this conversation with him. And I've been seeing this therapist for a little bit of time. And I realized, dude, you don't need to call her. You know what to do. (laughs) You're calling just to get some affirmation. But you really already have the tools. That's why you've been going. So call him back and do what you got to do. And I call him back and I check him on it. And I say, unless you have some constructive criticism to tell me why the interview didn't work or why the book isn't that good, you're you're just being mean-spirited, man. And, I'll, and that's not good. And then I throw in, and, and mommy wouldn't like that. Yeah, I know, that was being petty. That was wrong. But I had to throw that in there. And so, so he says, nah, man, no, nah, you, you, you know, I said, look, if there's anything I did in the book, and I'm sure there's a couple things I probably, you know, I feel bad about. I apologize. I apologize to you if I hurt you. Man, this ain't no apology tour. This ain't, you don't have to testify with me. 
And then he proceeded to do the thing he does. A day later, he texts me, I just heard your interview with Allison Stewart on WNYC. Man, it was one of the best you've ever done. He is who he is, man. Yeah. He yeah. is who he is. I don't think they're going to change. They're not going to change. Not at this point, no. But no. Let's, just, let's just try to extend them some grace and love them for who they are and keep them at where we need to keep them. <laughs> <laughs> but that's my feeling on it. Yeah, no, yeah. I, I totally hear. I mean, that's the thing I feel most about my dad is, like, I prioritize his relationship with my kids. There you go. That's the thing I keep in mind. Like, there you go. And that's, that's why I was so hurt. Like, I just sent you this thing of your gr- Focus on your granddaughter's birthday, not on the number of white people in the room. <laughs> I mean, I can have that conversation, but not in this moment. Uh, but yes. They're they never going to love the way we want them to love. Yeah. yeah. And I think I just had to finally realize he's going to love how he loves, and I'm just going to respect that. And it, it means that, yeah, I'm just going to respect it. So let, I, I, I love, yes, please, yes. I feel like there's not enough uh, celebration of awesome dad moves, of things that dads do. I think there's a lot of, like, sort of every dad in the commercial is like, sorry. What is an awesome dad move you've had either recently or one that you think about when you're feeling in your feelings about, like, no, I'm a good dad? Ah, yeah, there is one. So I am still learning how to be a father. And, man, recently I learned something you know, this, the importance, I haven't been the best listener for my daughters. And, and I feel, I, I just, I'm mad at myself for not realizing that earlier, mm-hmm. you know? So when I was a kid, I would get punished. I was kind of a precocious, arrogant kid, y'all. And so I would get punished a lot. And my mom would send, my dad would spank me, and my mom would send me to the room. I hated going to the room. I, I didn't want to be alone, which is another thing I talk about in the book. Like I need, so I didn't want to be alone. So she sent me to my room, which was the worst. And I go in there. I hate her. I hate her. And my mom would come in the room, and she would look at me, and inevitably she would recite a poem or sing a song, and it was always something humorous. Folks, birthing is hard and dying is mean, so why not get yourself a little loving in between? And then she'd walk out. (laughs) And I'd be so mad that I was laughing. (laughs) Like, why is she doing this? I was out of my funk. I was not saying I hate you. Like, she did this thing every time. So my kid, she's 14, and Samaya gets in trouble, or she's mad with us, and she runs in her room, and she closes her room and closes her door. And so for most of her life... I'm the dad who goes in and recites a poem or tries to make her laugh to get her out of the funk. And recently, she's, she said, Dad, can you come here for a second? I was like, yeah. She said, you know, Dad, it's okay to be angry sometimes. It's okay to sit with your anger. I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> I heard her. And so my proud dad moment is that I sort of am learning how to be more comfortable in those spaces of frustration or sadness or anger, that that is a normal thing. See how all these things tie together? 
So I feel good about that. Like I'm learning. Uh, Q, it's time for Q&A. Maybe past time for Q&A. How does it work? Does somebody put their hand in the air? So put your hand in the air if you have a Q you'd like us to A. Because this is Berkeley and I know how things work in Berkeley, at least make it end with a question mark sound. <laughs> Angela Williams, long-time listener, first-time questioner. So talk a little bit about the title. Why do fathers cry at night? I mean, it's a lot of reasons, man. I mean, when my mother passed away, speaking of Nikki Giovanni, when my mother passed away, I called Nikki. She's the first call I made. I was like, Mom passed. And she said, I'm sorry, Kwame, send me the funeral details and I'll, I'll see you there. And I knew I wasn't going to send her the funeral details because Nikki just like notoriously doesn't really go to funerals. The funeral was on a Friday. On Thursday, she called from the hotel. She said, I'm here. I'll see you tomorrow at the ceremony. And I said, you didn't, you didn't have to come because I knew how she felt. And in 30 years of knowing her, she has never cursed at me. And she said, why the fuck do you think I wouldn't be there? You have to know you still have a mother. My sisters were in no condition to plan the funeral. My father was not being agreeable. So I planned the whole funeral. I went into my mode of, oh, I'm going to plan the best funeral for my mom. I went into business mode, Kwame. This is about to be, it's about to be on. Poetry, music, everything. We're about to do this. No, I'm serious. I was in it. And so at the funeral, I am the, uh, I don't know if, I'm I'm the MC. I'm in the pulpit. I don't know. Yeah, Yeah, I'm, I'm something. I'm standing up. I'm introducing everybody. The choir, the. Everybody, I'm the guy. I'm feeling good. I'm doing this thing for my mom. And I look at my sisters in the front row, and they're broken. And they just, I think, I remember thinking to myself, they look so pitiful. I remember looking at my dad, and he, I think the outfit he wore, like he didn't even wear black. He just wore some random suit. And I was like, man, he looks so broken. And I remember thinking to myself, they look so pitiful. But I'm the strong one. I'm the pitiful one. I'm the one who never cried, who never went through this grieving process. At night, why fathers cry at night? Yeah, it's just 
Yeah. Kwame, thank you for your vulnerability and your sharing. And I was really touched about how you spoke about extending grace to your father. So it's clear you're doing your work. You did step one. I'm curious what grace you're extending to yourself right now as you're learning. I agree. <laughs> thousand percent. I was like, exactly. <laughs> That's exactly how I feel. <laughs> I really appreciate the question, and I feel like the answer's in the question. I get it. I get it. And I really appreciate that. Okay, one more. She's right here. Hi. Listening to you tonight, I'm in a small writing group of women who are working on their memoirs, and I'm realizing just listening to you tonight that there is an element of fear in writing your memoir. You think? <laughs> when did you recognize the fear of the pain-infused words, if I can put it that way? When did I recognize the fear? Yeah, when you started to write. But you, if, if I'm... Miss, if I'm understanding you correctly, right. started with the love poems sure. that turned into something yeah, else. Yeah. When, did, I, when did the fear I don't show think up? I had any fear while I was writing it because I wasn't thinking about it like that. The fear came when I got the advanced reading copies and I read it. And I was like, what did you just do? And so that's when the fear started. And it's a... Like it's a it's an evolving thing. I'm still I'm still figuring all this out. So the fear hasn't left. I'm just sort of facing it. You know, because I I, I do see the results. I see my father and I having some real conversations after this book. I see my sisters and my brothers and I in the same space. We've been together twice in the past two months. And we haven't all been in the same place for 20 years. I've seen, I've seen, I've, I've seen myself having some hard conversations with some, with some people who I love and who love me. So I see the results of it. So I, I, I see that it's serving me. So I'm going to continue to face it. But that's what it is. I appreciate you. I appreciate you. We both appreciate you very much. Thank Kwame you. Alexander, everybody. Kamal Bell, y'all. <laughs> Why Fathers Cry is a Big C Entertainment production, hosted by Kwame Alexander. Produced by Sarah Grace McCandless. Post-production by Jeremy Brisky at Burst Marketing. Theme music, St. State Street, composed by Joshua Gabriel and Bryant Terry. 
This episode was recorded live at the First Congregational Church of Berkeley, with special thanks to recording engineer Zach Miley and our Berkeley tour partners, W. Kamau Bell, Mrs. Dalloway's Bookstore, and the Berkwood Hedge School. Learn more at whyfatherscry.com. Special thanks to our sponsors and to you for listening wherever you get your podcast. We appreciate you.